Please turn in your Bibles to John 13, 31 to 35. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews, now, so I, now I will also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, um, it's good to be with you all this morning. I see a lot of familiar faces, which is fun, uh, fun for me. Um, some of you I don't know well. Look, look forward to meeting you after the service. Uh, you'll tell this is not a typical Advent sermon, right? We've gone, uh, rather than starting at the beginning of Jesus' life, we've gone to the end of his life. And the reason for that is uh, really to try to get a little bit of a different angle on what it means uh, that God came to us in the flesh and what it means uh, to be committed to him. That's really the thing I want to think with, uh, with you about um, <clears throat> This morning, and the goal is to think about the temptation we all face to compromise our most deeply held convictions, the blindness that results from such compromises, and how we might come to see and live clearly again. Because one of the things the advent of Jesus does is it immediately sets things into conflict. Jesus coming with and among us to abide with us immediately sets things into conflict. And so if we're going to properly celebrate the Advent season uh, and maybe do so with a little bit of fresh eyes to see what God was up to in that manger, I think it is actually useful to go to the end of Jesus' life and ask some questions about what it means that he came to be with us. Um, So a little bit of an apology for uh, picking a weird text (laughs) to start off Advent. Uh, Also, I've switched my opening illustration because Something happened over the weekend that I thought, okay, this is per- a perfect opening, so ex- please you know, forgive me for going to a very near uh, current events. So, here's our start. Did you guys know that Fidel Castro died over the weekend? Yes. You guys seen the, you've, seen the, you've seen the news, right? Um, Castro was, of course, the dictator of Cuba for more than 50 years. And we could focus on any number of terrible things that he did, for example, murdering hundreds, perhaps thousands of Christians. But I want to focus uh, this morning on the response to his death, particularly the response of the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. Have you guys seen this? Have you seen the statement? No? Okay, now think about this. This is what he had to say in a statement released yesterday. It is with deep sorrow that I learned today of the death of Cuba's Cuba's longest-serving president. Fidel Castro was a larger-than-life leader who served his people for almost half a century, a legendary revolutionary and orator. Mr. Castro made significant improvements to the education and health care of his island nation. While a controversial figure, both Mr. Castro's supporters and detractors recognized his tremendous dedication and love for the Cuban people who had a deep and lasting affection for El Comandante. I know my father was very proud to call him a friend, and I had the opportunity to meet Fidel when my father passed away. It was also a real honor to meet his three sons and his brother, President Raul Castro, during my recent visit to Cuba. 
On behalf of all Canadians, Sophie and I offer our deepest condolences to the family, friends, and many, many supporters of Mr. Castro. We join the people of Cuba today in mourning the loss of this remarkable leader. Hmm. (laughs) What to say? We know what Prime Minister Trudeau is doing, of course. He is lying about Castro in the way that politicians often must lie. Diplomatic and trade relations with Cuba are open again, and so in order to protect those relations, he makes a pragmatic choice and rationalizes Castro's legacy. But in this particular case, it is clear that he has gone too far. Castro was a tyrant who brought untold suffering and terror on his own people. For example, as for Trudeau's comment about Castro's improvements in the education, consider Castro's own boast from back in the early 2000s. He says, One of the great benefits of the revolution is that even our women of ill repute are college graduates. Hmm. (laughs) So so much for uh, those educational improvements. Trudeau's whitewash of Castro has elicited a rather hilarious response on Twitter under the hashtag Trudeau eulogies. I want to share a few of them with you. Mr. Stalin's greatest achievement was his eradication of obesity in the Ukraine through innovative agricultural reforms. Hashtag Trudeau eulogies. Darth Vader brought peace and order to the galaxy, ended hunger on Alderaan, and put millions to work on beneficial public works. Hashtag Trudeau eulogies. Closer to Advent. Though Herod was a bit protective of his throne, no one doubted his decisiveness over the childcare problem of his day. Hashtag Trudeau eulogies. Closer to our passage, we mourn the loss of Judas Iscariot. Remember his ambition and business acumen. Nothing got in his way, not even friends. Hashtag Trudeau eulogies. My personal favorite, today we mourn Lord Voldemort. Truly a magical innovator who strove for the advancement of wizards and witches everywhere. Now, lest we get too smug about the embarrassment of our neighbors up north, I would just suggest that you go find President Obama's statement um, from yesterday, and you will be equally bemused and disappointed. Now, what, are, what is going on here? What is going on when we have to whitewash someone like Fidel Castro, when we have to lie to ourselves about who he is and what he's done. How is it that the elected leaders of democratic governments find themselves in a position where they feel compelled to make statements that undermine their own principles? More generally, how do we, even the most principled among us, sometimes come to the point where we feel compelled to betray our own principles, where we feel compelled to lie to ourselves about a reality that is right in front of us. Our passage today shines a light on these questions and their dangers and shows us a better way, I think. This passage occurs towards the beginning of John's farewell discourse, which occurs on the night of Jesus' betrayal um, and the night before his death. Jesus has just shared the bread with Judas, who has departed to betray him. And so I want you to listen again to John 13, 31 to 35. When he had gone out, that is when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. 
Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you tell us the truth about yourself, about us, about the world that we live in. We pray, God, now that you would help us to see Jesus with fresh eyes, that we might live as his people. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So the question, the frame that I want to bring to this question of, of, uh, of Advent is this. When he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, and here's the question, how is it that someone who had been one of Jesus' most intimate disciples went out to betray him? How is it that any, you know, the, the, this sort of betrayal raises this question of how do you get to this point? How is it possible and how do we avoid it? And what I want to suggest is that part of the issue is precisely this issue of rationalization. It's precisely this temptation to want to deny what we see right in front of us. One of the strange things about Judas's betrayal of Jesus is that it's both entirely normal, it's presented in the Gospels as entirely normal and entirely demonic in character. The Gospels make it clear that one of Judas's motivations was money. In John 12, 6, we learn that he was in charge of the money bag the disciples carried, and he used to steal from it. In Matthew 26, it's after Jesus declares that Mary has anointed him uh, with expensive perfume for burial that Judas goes out to the chief priests to make a deal to betray him. But the Gospels also make it clear, so, so he was motivated on one level by greed, which suggests that one of the reasons that he had aligned himself with, with Jesus was because he was expecting Jesus as the Messiah to come, into it, to, to come into his own and to come into power. And he was thinking, I'll align myself with him, and in aligning myself with him, I'll have an opportunity to enrich myself. Do you see the logic? So there's this question about why, why what are our motives and what is our rationale for aligning ourselves with Jesus? That, that hangs over Judas, and it hangs over Jesus' betrayal. It also hangs over the scattering that happens amongst Jesus' disciples at his condemnation and crucifixion. What are our motives? Why are we Christians? Why are we aligning ourselves with this man? The Gospels also make it clear, though, that Satan coaxed Judas into betraying Jesus. You know, we look at Luke 22, John 13. What does this mean? Why, why? So it's a kind of an interesting little detail where they mention that Satan had been working on Judas, and, and even some of, the, some of the Gospels say that he entered him. So they use different language, and there's this question, why? Why talk about this little aspect of the detail? Well, the evangelists do not expand on this, which suggests that they assume we will understand the point by implication. So they reference both Judas's greed and Satan. And the point, I think, is this. I think it's most likely that we're to understand that Satan is a liar. In other words, Judas' betrayal of Jesus indicates that he was both misperceived. So Judas misperceived who Jesus was, and he betrayed him based on this misperception. Do you see the point? We have to ask ourselves the question, who is Jesus? 
What do we want from him? Why would we align ourselves with him? That's the question that, was at, that, that became a part of Jesus' life from the very beginning. Who is this child who's come to us? You know, and Herod loses his mind over this question, right? He loses his mind over it. Who is this child? Can I gain something from him or not? If I can't gain something from him, should I eliminate him? Everyone was asking this question. So Judas betrayed Jesus for his own personal gain, and in doing that, he aligned himself with Satan's propaganda campaign against Jesus. The key point, I think, for us, for us as we think about what it means that Jesus came to be with us in the flesh is this. Big betrayals begin with a little lie. Big betrayals begin with a little lie. It begins with a normal, everyday rationalization. Judas had long since made peace with helping himself to the common purse. So when a larger betrayal came along, it was only one further step on an already existing trajectory. You see, the thing about Jesus is he demands everything, everything. You can't use him for your own purposes. Judas was trying to use him for for his own purposes. Even the disciples are asking this question about what they're going to get out of Jesus' life. The thing is, he demands everything. Judas didn't set out to betray Jesus. He made peace with little betrayals along the way. So when the big betrayal came along, he was ripe for it. You see, he thought, I'll enrich myself. This will be good for me if I align myself with this man. And when it became clear that he was not going to get what he thought he was going to get out of Jesus, he turned away. So the thing that Advent asks of us is, what do we want from Jesus? What do we want? What are we seeking? And if part, if, if part of it is we want him to fix something in our lives, we want him to give us something that we don't have, we want to use him for part of our own purposes, watch out. Watch out. Big betrayals begin with little lies. They begin with little compromises. And before long, we don't even know who Jesus is. You see the, you see the point. You know, Justin Trudeau didn't start out to whitewash Castro. He's been rationalizing the guy for a long time so that by the point where his death comes along, all he can see is the image that he's created of the man. Judas didn't set out to betray Jesus, and when he realized what he had done, he recoiled from it in horror, but it was too late. So the question for us is this. Where are we tempted to make Peace with sin. Where are we tempted to ask that question, what can I gain from Jesus? Judas had, of course, heard the Sermon on the Mount. He had heard Jesus' assurance that the Heavenly Father knows what we need. He had heard Jesus' admonition to seek first the kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things would be added to him. Yet he stole. Yet he used Jesus for his own purposes. 
Where do we doubt God's promises? Where are we tempted by pragmatic thinking, by thinking that God's way of working is not workable? And so what I'll do is I'll pursue God's way, but I'll also pursue my own way on the side. You see, I'll, I'll pursue God's way, but I'll also I'll pursue this other little thing. And maybe, maybe that's okay. Maybe that mixture is okay. At those places, the little lie that leads to big betrayal is being told to us. At those places where we're tempted to rationalize, where we're tempted to think, oh, there's this one little area of my life that doesn't belong to Jesus, and I can pursue this little area. You see, the thing about that is that area grows over time. It grows over time until there comes a point where we look at Jesus and we think, he's not serving my needs. He's not doing what I want. And we turn from him. Jesus knows this, of course, and so he teaches teaches us how to recognize the lie. He teaches us how to recognize the little lie that leads to big big betrayal. One thing, just a little, I sort of wrestled with talking about this. We're so close. You know, I was thinking, the thing I was thinking about is Jesus' kingship and how in his advent it created all this political turmoil in Israel. And I was thinking, you know, we're really only three weeks off of the election. And I really wrestled with whether or not to even talk about that. But one of the things I'll say, and I'll just say this very briefly, one of the things I think that Christians in particular that we have to be really careful of is the way that we rationalize our political choices or the way that we justify what we do. And this, this is what I mean by that. There are all kinds of good reasons to vote for a variety of different people, right? The thing we can't do, though, is lie to ourselves about who we're voting for. The thing we can't do is lie to ourselves about the policies that the people that we're voting for pursue. Do you see the point? People were trying to use Jesus because he was a Messiah. He was a king. And they were lying to themselves. Judas was lying to himself about who this man was. And when he saw it clearly, when Jesus said clearly, she's anointed me for burial and that Jesus was going to go to his death like he'd been saying, he recoiled from it. He turned from it in horror. So we have to be very careful. There are all kinds of good reasons, right? All kinds of good reasons to vote for a variety of policies and a variety of people. But we can't lie to ourselves. We can't rationalize. We can't make those people something they're not. Otherwise, we might end up sounding like Justin Trudeau one of these days, believing that the pig we've smeared with lipstick is actually a beauty queen. Jesus knows that these little lies lead to big betrayal, so he teaches us a better way. That way has to do with his extraordinary glory. How do we recognize these little lies for what they are? How do we recognize those places where we're trying to make a deal with Jesus, where we're trying to say, yes, your way, but this little part of my way? Well, the key in this passage is to recognize the paradoxical paradoxical, extraordinary nature of Jesus' glory. Here's what I mean. Look at verses 31 and 32, if you still got your Bibles open there. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Notice how Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Judas goes out, 
And Jesus says, now. And what he's saying is, all of my life, you know, that little baby born in a manger, he was born for this moment. Now. Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now that is a remarkable statement, isn't it? The humble king who comes to us in a manger is born for betrayal. He's born for this moment. How is that? How is it that Judas' betrayal becomes the occasion for Jesus' glory and God's glory? How is it that everything was leading up to this? Well, there are two things, I think, that are going on here in this juxtaposition. One is there's this massive contrast between Judas's lies that he's been telling himself about who Jesus is. Judas has been telling himself that Jesus is something that he is not. And when it becomes clear to him who Jesus really is, a savior, not who will reign and enrich his followers, but who will die, when Judas sees this, he despairs and betrays him. You see, what happens when we want to use Jesus for our own purposes, he won't do that. He won't let us do that. He will inevitably disappoint us. He won't let us use him for our own purposes. And if that's what we think he came for, then we're inevitably going to be disappointed. By contrast, Jesus' fidelity to God and to his purposes unto death is the culmination of his continuous daily commitment to the will of the Father. He knows who he is. And he lives out of that knowledge day to day. This is his extraordinary glory, his day by day, simple fidelity to the will of the Father. And paradoxically, it is Jesus' fidelity to the Father, even unto death on a cross, that is the definition of this glory. Now is he glorified because now people are going to see what it means for a human being to be committed to God. Now people are going to see what it means for God to be committed to us. That's his glory. The big lie is this. It's life without death. That's the lie. The big lie is this. It's glory without suffering. That's the lie. The lie is that we can have what we want in and from life without God and apart from his ways. Now is Jesus glorified because now the truth of who he is, the truth of who God is, is fully exposed. This is his paradoxical but extraordinary glory. He trusts the Father even unto death. And so the Father will glorify him at once. This is where his whole life has been leading. This is why he tells the disciples that they will seek him, but where he is going, they cannot come. He alone is fully faithful unto death. He alone goes to the Father's side. His glory is His alone. We can't use Him for our own purposes. We can't gain any of the good things that God has for us apart from Him. You see, if we're going to see Jesus clearly in this Advent season, what we have to see, what we have to see 
is the ruler of all things who demands unconditional surrender. Unconditional. We can't keep this little part of our life. We can't make a bargain with God. We can't think that we're going to get the good things out of life that we want apart from Him and apart from His ways. Only Judas betrayed Jesus, but all the disciples scattered. And so for for us, we have to ask this question, what are we in this for? What are we in this for? In one of C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia stories, The Silver Chair, he tells the story of Jill Pohl. Jill has made an ill-advised choice and finds herself in a strange forest, separated from her friend, Eustace Scrub. She has become desperately thirsty, and she comes upon a lion next to a stream. Lewis writes, But although the sight of water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. And if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried. And she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. For a second she started here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that, and her mind certainly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began to scoop up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. There is the constant little lie in life that we can have what we want without God. But there's no life apart from the lion. There's no life without risk of pain. There's no glory without suffering. There's no life without death. And in our culture, this is particularly difficult for the church to consistently recognize and confess. You see, we have good things to offer the world. We have friendship and community. We have a large world-encompassing message that gives us purpose and hope. We have a deep tradition, a deep and diverse culture that goes back thousands of years and has been the impetus of some of the great works of art and literature. We have all of these good things, 
but they're not ours apart from Jesus, and we can't offer them apart from Jesus. And that means that first and foremost, we can promise nothing good apart from him. The sort of comfort Jesus offers is had only in a transforming relationship with him, and that's painful. He makes no promises. It is offered only to those who will die daily to all the little lies our culture tells us about where life is to be found. To find life in Jesus and in the community of his followers. So how do we recognize the little lies not only in our own lives but in the church? They're to be found at those places where we are tempted to offer the good things apart from God, the good things of God apart from Jesus. They're found at those places where we imply that a Christian life can be had without significant risk, without significant pain, without fundamental commitment. There's no other water. There's no other stream. This helps explain, you know, did you notice there's kind of a gap? You know, as you get to the new commandment, it kind of jumps. He talks about them not being able to go where he goes, and then he gives them a new commandment. And I think this helps explain this this idea of Jesus' paradoxical glory and the fact that he won't share it, and that if we're going to have any any life, we've got to have it in him. I think that helps explain why he goes to this new commandment. So I want to close briefly with just a little bit of encouragement. This extraordinary paradoxical glory of Jesus is also a gift he gives to the church. But it's a gift that he gives in commandment form. Look at verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Just as I have loved you. The humble Lord who served his disciples and his neighbors day by day in obedience to the will of his Father. Yes, there are the great teachings, there are the great miracles, but there's also the ordinary life of a Jewish carpenter, the ordinary life of a mentor and friend. And in that ordinary life of obedience was an extraordinary glory. What is our purpose as God's people? It is a grand purpose. It is to live in this extraordinary glory of the King of Kings who has life in himself. But it's expressed in ordinary life. Look at what Jesus says. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this. If you have love for one another. How do we avoid the little lies that lead to a big betrayal? It's by living. It's very simple, but it's profound. It's by living in this day-to-day reality of the glory of God and the ordinary life of the love of Jesus amongst his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you know us. Lord, we thank you that you see us clearly. We thank you, God, that though we're tempted to misunderstand who you are and what you've done, that you offer us life. Lord, that you clarify what it means to be committed to you. I pray, God, that you would help us not to make peace in those little areas of our lives where we want to live apart from you, but to help us to submit to your good and gracious reign. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.